Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Working with the Rural Support Trust, each week I talk with farmers and industry professionals to hear their stories and expert opinions on various industry-related matters that are relevant to both our farming and our urban communities. Taking a quick look at the lamb and beef markets, the North Island lamb slaughter prices have been very steady over the past couple of weeks and lambs are flowing into processes nicely. In the South Island, lamb prices have firmed slightly in general, but space is tighter at the processes compared to the North Island, so any upside will be limited by capacity. A North Island lamb is processing at around $6.50 per kilogram and $6.25 per kilogram in the South respectively. Cattle slaughter prices have seen a lift at the farm gate as processors make some minor premiums available for volume but do not alter schedules. We are starting to get into beef weaner season and prices are already looking firm for breeders. Currently a North Island steer is processing at around $5 per kilogram on the hook and $4.50 per kilogram in the south respectively. This week on Factor Magri, I catch up with Lindsay Wright to hear all about a project he started to help farmers. Let's check in with him now. Hello Lindsay, thank you for your time today. Angus, thanks, it's nice to be here. Lindsay, you know many things, including a farmer. Please can you tell me a bit about your farm and where you are located? Yeah, sure, I'm on a family farm. I'm fourth generation Southlander and uh, our farm's in Wendonside in the northern end of the province up against the hill so half of the farm is dead flat and half the farm is uh, quite steep rolling hill country and as I say fourth generation here but I'm no longer a farmer I leased out in 2006 uh, after a few battles with the demons and uh, so I've uh, headed in other directions but I still live on my farm and I thoroughly enjoy being here. You're also a coordinator for the Southland Rural Support Trust and a founding member of the Good Programs Trust which manages a good yarn. Can you tell me about Good Yarn? Good Yarn started down here in Southland uh, in 2014. Through my work with the Rural Support Trust, uh, I had been involved in, uh, we had the big snow back in 2010 and a few other events that we'd been involved in. And through that, we became connected with WellSouth. And at the time, WellSouth, which was the PHO for Otago Southland, were doing some research into what was available in, by way of, of mental health support for rural people in Otago South and especially, but across New Zealand. And virtually there was nothing. And so they had done some research and put together a paper. And through those connections, they came to me and said, would I be involved or like to be involved in developing the, a workshop for rural people to get that information out to them. And so right from the, I was there right from the beginning of the Good Yarn workshop. Uh, we piloted it in Gore in Southland in 2014. And it took, took legs pretty quickly. And so we were presenting it through Otago and Southland. And then about 2016, I think it was, we did a roadshow for Dairy NZ around the South Island, taking the workshop to their farm source buildings around South Island and that again took on another level of interest and so from there it suddenly grew wings and became too big for Well South. Uh, well South only operates in Otago Southland and so the workshop 
was transferred over to the Good Programs Trust, which we had to set up to manage it New Zealand-wide, and it's just grown from there. That's fantastic, Lindsay. Are there more Good Yarn workshops lined up this year? Yes, there are. And when you say lined up, they are not specifically listed on any particular place. The Good Yarn Workshop works under a licensing model. And so as we've grown so quickly, we were unable to present the workshops ourselves. So it now runs under, under license. And so what we do is we train facilitators within businesses, within rural areas, and we teach those facilitators how to present the workshop in their own particular sphere of operation. And that's been the success of it. It's, it's a peer-led model. It's not presented by experts wearing white coats and carrying clipboards. It's local people presenting the information to local people. And so far, through all the rural and urban workshops that we've done, there's been oh, over eight and a half thousand people have attended, something like 750 odd workshops. So that's that's the access to it. Now, if rural people are looking for access to it, the, the rural support trusts have a license, so they are able to present to rural people who don't belong to a bigger organisation. But for larger organisations, they can call our office at goodyarn.org and arrange to either get training or join up with a licensed presenter. Lindsay, are the farmers you talk to getting better at talking about the various stresses on farm? And are they increasingly taking positive steps? I think I would have to say yes, but it is still a difficult step for them to start the conversation. And that's the barrier that we have to break down. And when we talk about that in Good Yarn, that stigma of having to say to somebody, I'm not coping, is still pretty big in our society. And so we have, we, we, yeah, we do have better conversations than we used to, but it's still a big thing for people to say, it's just getting too hard for me. So um, stress impacts on people in various ways. And one of the things we see is that stress can lead to depression, but even under a stressful situation, Decision-making is the, one of the things that goes, and people can start making decisions that aren't best thought out, maybe not the wisest, and when it doesn't work out for them, it, it kind of compounds their belief that they are not good at what they're doing because, see what, I made a decision and that didn't work. So eventually they say, I'm not going to make any decisions, and, and everything just stagnates. Mm. So yes, they're better at talking, but it's still a, a big step for somebody to cross that line. Is that going to take intergenerational conversations for significant change to happen, do you think? I hope not intergenerational, but it certainly takes time. I mean, we've been running uh, Good Yarn since 2014. We've been running our South and Rural Support Trust since 2008. And we're only, with the Rural Support Trust, you know, we're only just starting to scratch the surface of people knowing who we are. It does take time. And the Good Yarn program, similar, it takes time, although I think the uptake has been quicker because it's a specific um, you know, specific workshop that, that is being presented and people can latch onto it uh, and, and identify with it reasonably quickly. I hope it's not intergenerational, but it does take time. And it's a subject that people are still reluctant to talk about by bringing it up themselves. If I speak to people socially and they ask what I do and I say, well, I'm involved with Good Yarn, immediately they're happy to talk Good Yarn and its contents and and stress and mental health till the cows come home. Mm. But they never raise the subject. 
and that's that's the barrier we're still trying to to break down and hopefully good yarn can help that indeed in february last year your region was severely impacted by flooding how did that impact farmers and how was the region supported both immediately and the subsequent months after this was one of the biggest floods we've had through our region angus and uh, the immediate response comes from our civil defence team down at Invercargill and we've had a close working relationship with them through Real, Real Support Trust since the 2010 snow. So we work very closely with them. The immediate response was to identify the properties that were in the flood zone and then contact them to see what the, the consequences were at the time and, and the problems that were you know, appearing. That has improved. In, in the 2010 snow, we did that with a sheet of paper and a whole bunch of um, road reps from all the agribusinesses drove around the province visiting farmers um, day after day after day. And it took them about two weeks to cover all the affected people. Fortunately, things have become electronic. And this time we had about 1,100 farms that were immediately affected by the flood zone. And with the help of those same people, but telephones, uh, GIS mapping, the civil defence were able to overlay the flood zone on the exact farm and give us the details of the farm contacts that were in the way of the water. And so we were able to cover those 1,100 farmers in the day and a half with the help of our agribusiness partners and find out what was going on, who needed help immediately. And so that was great. You know, there was things like access issues, um, both getting to properties, but also on property, getting cows to sheds, or with cows were in a shed and couldn't get out to to feed because their pathways were blocked. Um, a lot of gravel came down with the flood. The flood banks had burst. There was bailage floating uh, from one end of the province to the other almost. And so that was the immediate response, was pretty much through civil defence, mm. and we were working very closely with them. Following that, obviously, the MPI declared an adverse event for the region, and that brings about adverse event funding, which helps both Rural Support Trust to you know, provide the services that we do, but also uh, help with uh, community events and you know, well-being events for, for the farmers down the track. So it's kind of a, a two-stage response and then recovery. Mm. Have the farmers that were impacted from that event fully recovered? Uh, I can't say that they would be fully recovered, but most of them had worked through it. However, it's been superseded by this January's flood, so uh, a lot of the guys that are on the rivers kind of give you a wry smile and say, well, that's, that's what you get for living on a river. So they just kind of finished cleaning up from February last year and they have another one this year. Um, it comes with the territory of living by a farm, uh, by, a, by a river. And um, so, yes, they, they had done a, come a long way recovering from February, but floods keep coming and you just never know when they're coming. Um, a lot of the challenges now are around you know, managing the rivers uh, and especially with new rules coming up as to what you can and can't do with rivers. Uh, a lot of farmers are finding that quite a challenge. Uh, I guess some good news. Uh, the dairy price is looking quite positive at the moment. Many in the region will be celebrating that. I would think they will be, but I also hope it's cautiously because we know how quickly things can turn around. But I think there's a lot of help out there now you know, to advise farmers 
on how to how to manage themselves through the good times as well as the bad. So that um, if things are going well, what's the best use of your you know, of your money at that time to make things better for the next time it gets tough? Uh, and so, uh, I mean, I'm not I, I'm not qualified to tell people what to do with their money, but uh, when it is good, it's great as long as they can make the best use of that money when times get tough again, mm. because they will. Just talking about tough times, and you've just touched on this. Um, how are things looking on the essential fresh water rules uh, in Southland? I know a lot of good work has been done by the Southland Advisory Group to date. Yes, there has been a lot of good work done, and it's it's been an interesting process right through because our farmers down here, we had a, a local land and water plan, which they went through two or three years ago, and then that has been superseded by the essential fresh water rules. And so they're kind of feeling a bit battered. Uh, they've been, had new stuff being thrown at them, um, often not at the best time of the farming year for them to sit down and consider it. But uh, the process that happens with that, with new 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 information coming at farmers like that, is that it, it just becomes like a tidal wave, or it seems to have become a tidal wave. And there's a lot of pushback. But fortunately down here, there have been a lot of catchment groups set up in local areas. And I think this could be the way forward, well, one of the ways forward, because with all that change coming, and you know, they've, it's been pointed out that this is generational change. You know, it's a quantum shift requirement to, to get to the level of uh, water quality that's being asked for. But through the catchment groups, farmers can, uh, they can take ownership of their problem and have a voice, mm. uh, which is much better than standing by yourself shouting at the wind. And so catchment groups can target their own particular areas, take their own particular concerns and problems and go as a, cons you know, as a consolidated voice to the environment, uh, regional councils and, uh, and talk with credibility and, and have a bit of say in the matter. So I think that's going to be one of the ways forward is through the catchment groups. And indeed, um, and of course, these catchment groups, and you talk about the collective, uh, I guess, power of farmers, these changes uh, need to be farmer-led in order for farmer buy-in and actually to achieve real change, don't they? They do. You're, you are very unlikely to go and do something if somebody says you have to go and do it. But if a person or a farmer says, I can see the need for this and I want to do it, it's a whole different story. And change is going to keep coming, so um, you can either ignore it or you can do something about it. Mm. So what does the future look like for New Zealand farmers, Lindsay? Well, I think we've probably just touched on it. Change is, change is the only constant in farming, uh, the uncertainty of what's coming next. We know there's a, quite a list out there that has to be dealt with at the moment, um, and, it, and this one's a quantum shift. But I think... I mean, I think the, the, as the young farmers are coming in, I mean, this is this is the world for them. For somebody like me who's been around and, and going out the other end, I look back at it and I think, crikey, I don't know if I'd have the energy to, to take it on. But it, it is what farming is at the moment. And I think as, as long as people can take those, those challenges on in a positive way and find a way through them, this is going to be a long haul, the current lot. And I think that's going to be the hard part. How do you recognise the good work that farmers are doing to make those changes when it can't all be done by next week. This is mm. going to take many years to happen 
and a lot of energy and, and probably a lot of cost on farmers. And so they they need to be recognised for any work that they are doing in that respect and you know, encouraged to keep going because it, it, it won't happen quickly. Uh, and it, I think if they're not recognised, then disillusionment could set in. So um, as I see it, recognition of good work needs to be quite well up on the list. Mm. And as a retired farm yourself who is intergenerational, is the family farm safe or are we going to see more corporate ownership? That's a really good question. Um, possibly more corporate just because of the um, the economies of scale that can be achieved by the corporate farm. However, it's a bit sad having been a family farm to see the loss of that entity as well because there is something about having your own connection to a piece of land and as farms get bigger, you know, communities get smaller, I think, because, um, you know, we used to have a 10 mile community and now it's a, probably a 100 kilometer community that we operate in. And so connections between farmers uh, is, is harder to keep because, you know, they're, they're not seeing each other regularly like we used to in the, in the good old days. And mm. uh, so, and, and that's where, you know, Good Yarn comes in because we, we talk about, you know, isolation and, and one of the signs of somebody becoming uh, stressed and maybe depressed is that they start to isolate themselves and it's becoming pretty easy to isolate yourself without even being depressed without, but if you are feeling down it's very easy to isolate yourself in the in the bigger corporate world mm. and um, just to remind me Lindsay where can people find out about the Good Yarn programs? best place is to just go to our website goodyarn.org Angus and from there they can see what it's all about see the whole program laid out but also there's contacts there for our program manager Michelle and she'll be able to help people in whichever way they want to take it so yeah just contact look at look at the website and contact Michelle thank you very much for your time today Angus it's a pleasure and nice to be able to help thank you to Lindsay for his time Good Yarn is an evidence-based, peer-delivered mental health literacy program. Good Yarn has three aims and evaluation indicators. Increase awareness of signs and symptoms of common mental illness. Build confidence in starting a conversation where you are concerned. And improve knowledge of where and how to get help. The program originally started out in 2014 as an initiative for rural communities and rural professionals especially those involved in the business of farming. Demand for and feedback from the rural model led to the development of a workplace model in 2018. Both programs are similar in content and approach. However, the scenarios and graphics have been tailored to the different audiences. Good Yarn Rural is aimed at farmers and professionals engaging with farmers. Good Yarn Workplace is aimed at helping staff, teams and colleagues and can be used in all organisations, both rural and urban. In 2016, Good Yarn Rural won Best Mental Health Promotion Mental Illness Prevention Programme in the Australasian Mental Health Services Awards. This programme is helping many people and organisations. As Lindsay mentioned earlier, head to www.goodyarn.org to find out more. Speaking of wellbeing, I believe if we are asking more of our farmers in addition to the great work they are already doing on the environment front, 
then farmers have the right to ask more of the government. An example of this, and given there is such a drive for sustainability, why as a country are we not banning oil-based and synthetic carpets and insulation, for example? I've talked about wool previously. We have farmers producing one of the most sustainable products on the planet, which is wool, and farmers are currently getting next to no money for its harvest. In fact, it is a cost to their businesses, as the check they receive for their wool does not even cover the sharing cost. I say to you, policymakers, how about you start to make a real difference and help our farmers? If you're going to turn the heat up in one area, pressure needs to come off in another, and I would start by insulating and carpeting every single new house in this country with wool. It's time to take some leadership. Thank you for listening, and catch you next time on Factor Magri.